0: Well, I'm really looking forward to the Christmas post. It's going to be fun. And uh, quite honestly, that's the way Christmas ought to be. It was announced from the very beginning by the, Lord, the Lord's host himself, themselves that they brought glad tidings of great joy. So Christmas ought to be that. It ought to be a, a great time of celebration for us. And, um, and we should uh, bring that kind of joy to the world because uh, our Savior has come. And he has uh, given his life that we might have life eternal. And uh, Christmas started that, uh, that great message on earth that, that God had come to save us. And so I hope that you're excited about that and looking forward to the weekend and, and ready to celebrate this great month of December and, and all that, that God has, um, has for us. Well, I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic today. Um, for some 20-some-odd years... Jordan and I have been coming to church together, whether it was walking to church or driving to church. The, the other faction of our family like to take a little slower pace with time, but, um, but the Jordan side and, and myself, we've, we've come to church together for every Sunday, every single Sunday, no matter what time I left, he was always with me, and he's moving out, and uh, he's going to his own place now, and so today we went to church together, and that was kind of our last time, and... And so uh, the little bird is leaving the nest, and, and I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a little bit of a lump in my throat today, and, although there are some pluses to this. <laughs> However, now I'm going to have to drive my own car instead of hitching a ride with him and use my own gas. So, <laughs> buddy, it's, it's been good. It's been a slice. I was studying this week um, the early church in preparation for um, trying to present and bring to you a description of disciple-making churches, the best practices of disciple-making churches. It seemed to me that, that maybe we ought to have, take some time and look at the uh, first representation of church and try and get some ideas of, of, of what really made them tick. And I suppose I could summarize it for you this way what I discovered is that when disciples did what Jesus commanded them to do, the results were spectacular. And I think that shouldn't surprise us, but um, regularly we're looking for other models or other ideas or trying to come up with, with uh, special things ourselves. But the truth is, when the disciples did what Jesus commanded them to do, the results were spectacular. I wonder if you might turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I want to... Um, Begin reading at verse 38 and go down to verse 47, but we'll touch on a a couple of other places in that text as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, of course, to a question when they asked, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. those who were being saved. What a great moment that was in redemption history. You know, those who were saved became literally here discipling disciples. That's what they were. In one day it says here that 3,000 were added to the church. Now, two descriptors caught my attention in particular as I was looking at this text. And um, of, of all the descriptors that churches could have, these two really ought to, I think, grab our attention as well. And the one is found in verse 43 where it says that they were all filled with awe. There was an awe-filled place. And in verse 47, amazingly, uh, it says there that they were favorably noticed. In other words, the people outside of of the faith, uh, those who did not know about Christianity, all the people outside were, uh, gave, granted favor uh, to this particular Uh, group of people and and those two things catch my attention I think and ought to because many uh, have attempted in in church descriptions or in church uh, strategies and tactics to produce the results of the early church. And we have all kinds of descriptors for church today. We have the contemporary church, we have the traditional church, we have the classic church, we have the multicultural church, the multi-generational church, the fundamental church, the house church, the emergent church, the radical church, the seeker-sensitive church, the purpose-driven church, the personality-driven church, and then we have the off-field church. Personally, I put my vote in for the off-field church. And the church where, where it is noticeably, or favored noticeably. And the reason that I think that it is awe-filled and, and, and favorably noticed is because it is the Spirit-filled church. It's the Spirit-filled church because it did what Jesus asked it to do. And uh, I, I think if we want to have a moniker for our church or, uh, or, or churches that are really actually um, keen in on uh, how the Lord wants it to be, I think we ought to be an awe-filled church, uh, Church that's favorably noticed by those outside because it's a spirit-filled church. And, and I want to show you uh, this morning what was going on here and uh, what practices I think should be transferred to, uh, uh, to our church and what we should be doing and make sure that the description um, is, is, uh, is, um, uh, is, is according to our church as well. So let's pray before we do that. Father, um, the word of God is open before us this morning and... We, we have a lot of preconceived notions about how things should be, and we, we've got a lot of traditions backing us. We have uh, our own cultural um, biases that crowd out our lives and our thinking. But Father, I pray this morning that, that we would be willing to set all of that aside, and, and one of the descriptions of the people of that early church is their hearts were open. They, they were open-hearted people. And I pray, Father, this morning that, as always, we would come before you and before your word, your message to us with open hearts that would be responsive to what you say to us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit today through your word. So I ask, Father, that, that we would al- you would already set up our hearts this morning to be attentive and to receive and welcome whatever you have for us. And Lord, as always, I pray that we would be Quick to make adjustments in our lives, in our lives together, in our lives individually, wherever we find that your word is in conflict with how we're living, or our lives are in conflict with your word, that we might bring our lives into alignment with your will and your ways for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you five uh, descriptions this morning that jump out of this text, and I want to bring these descriptions, not only from uh, a historic perspective, but but as a challenge to us as a congregation. And the first thing that I notice in this text, I think, is this, that, that they took the Great Commission seriously, regardless of cultural discomfort, cost, or inconvenience. I get that out of verse 41. There's some background and backdrop that I want to bring to you, but in verse 41 it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and I want to stop right there we maybe can't see or, or, or don't see with our own uh, hearts how particularly radical that was. See, the 3,000 that were added to that church that day were, were Jews. And, and we need to understand that, uh, for the most part, they were religious Jews. They were Jews who thought that, for the most part, that everything was okay between them and God. And they were presented with this radical message uh, from Peter And and they listened to the message. And they responded to the message. And and his message was repent. Turn from where you are going and living. And turn toward Christ. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now what we don't know in terms of the description here. Is that for a Jew to be baptized was incredibly challenging. And and was was a huge cultural challenge. You see. Baptism wasn't invented with Christianity, baptism rites were carried on by, by pagan rituals and in fact the Jews themselves practiced a form of baptism. When Gentiles came into the, to Judaism, they had to go through ceremonial cleansing and, and, and you need to understand that, that what the Jews were doing here is um, they had always considered Gentiles to be dogs. And it was the right of dogs to be baptized to come into Judaism. Now they were responding to this message of salvation and this teaching. And they themselves were lining up to be baptized. uh, Going against their their cultural biases and their prejudices. And responding to the living Christ. The the great commission and the mission of, of Christ. These people, disciples, did just as Jesus told them. They invited sinful men uh, to become fishers of men, and they embraced the right when dogs came into the fold. And, and this was an amazing act of God that would, would cause 3,000 people to, to come into Christian to be, to be baptized. And, 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 you know, when I look at this text, I realize that, that the message that Peter told is the message that we bring to people. It's it's a grand message. In, In verse 22, it begins with, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he took them to the Old Testament prophecy and scriptures. David, your own king said about him, this Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. He brought this grand message to them. This is the message we bring. Tell people of the excellent way of God and they will respond uh, this past couple of weeks, our own kids have been evangelizing up at the university campus. And, and uh, three or four kids have, have responded to the gospel. Do you understand that, that people in your neighborhood, people in your workplace, even some people in, a, in distant parts of your family, I would presume, have never heard the good news. They've never heard about Jesus. They've never heard the message that that there's a path of life, there's a there's a way to find the pleasures of God forevermore. There's a way for your heart's guilt to be lifted and forgiven of your sins. They've never heard this message. And when they are brought into a realization of the message, many of them respond and receive Christ and are willing to take whatever whatever steps it means, whatever cultural leaps they have to make to respond to the gospel and and live a life serving Christ, they took the Great Commission seriously and believed that people would respond regardless of cultural discomfort, cost, or inconvenience. And um, God, therefore, brought 3,000 even that day into a relationship with himself after these people taking a revolutionary step and radical reaction to the message and were baptized. Well, there's a second thing I notice in this this whole uh, journey of and a descriptor of, of uh, best practices of disciple-making churches. And it is found in verses 42 and 43. Uh, in particular, I want to key on verse 42. It says there, they devoted themselves to the center of Christian life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, I'm calling that the center of Christian life. Let's understand what was really making this place tick. This word devoted means that they were constantly or literally obstinately persistent in the things that really, really mattered. Now, here's the keys in their lives that I think we need to understand. They did not confuse religious busyness with fruitfulness. They had already lived out the barrenness of religious busyness. And now they had come in, into an awareness of this great faith in Jesus Christ and that their lives could count. And they were being presented with the things that would make a difference in shaping their lives. And, and so there was this, this transformation in their lives. There, were, there are lots of things, there's lots of action, there's lots of busyness that, that can, can lead us to avoid the main things that the things that really matter, and Satan is only too glad to to, present, to bring into our lives lots of distractions that will keep us away from devotion to the things that really matter. But the second enemy that they also uh, seem to be able to overcome is they did not allow personal busyness to crowd out spiritual core priorities, and those core priorities are the spiritual socialization with God and with each other. There was a steadfast commitment I I see in their lives to make their baptism a picture of their real life going forward. They were totally immersed in Jesus Christ. And it made all the difference in the world. It it made them do the right things. They made time to do the right things. And I want to look at uh, specifically here in this verse uh, at these right things. What are these right things? God does indeed show us what are the right things and how we should prioritize our lives. And frankly, it's important for us because we need to have um, our predisposition to be satisfied with just knowing what the right things are as opposed to doing the right things. That makes all the difference in the world. We tend to be, uh, by nature, uh, people who are quite fascinated and quite interested in knowing what are the right things. Uh, It brings us, it draws us to settings like this. Tell us what the right things are. We got our pens out and our papers before us, and we'll jot down all those right things. But what is critical in our lives, and what makes all the difference in the world, is not just knowing what the right things are, but doing the right things. I know that I must sometimes sound like a broken record to you, but... But quite honestly, I know my own heart. I know what I'm like, and I know what we're all like. And, and, um, and, and if you'll humor me for a few moments, do you not find that it's true that, that the most physically unhealthy people you know around you are experts generally in medical things? I mean, is that not generally the truth? You, you, you meet people, and they're like, they're falling apart physically, but they know everything about health. They're like a walking medical textbook And what goes on in all of our minds is, if you know so much about this stuff, why don't you put it into practice? Right? I mean, there's a few simple things in life that could make us a lot more healthy. Stop with the donuts already, right? We already know that. I love them, Cindy, don't get me wrong. But stop with the donuts. Stop with the fat, greasy stuff, right? We know all of this stuff. But we don't really want to put into practice in our lives and quite honestly a lot of us are spiritually unhealthy and we're experts literal experts in what is right before god and i can tell you and i think you'll all agree with me that our physical health is far less important than our spiritual health our spiritual health is the reality we carry with us for all of eternity and so um, this whole verse here verse 42 is to transition people from knowing what is right to putting into practice what is right in our lives. Cultivating our minds is good, but it does nothing to shape our hearts. Our hearts are only shaped by actually putting into practice what we know uh, we are supposed to do. And there were four things that they were engaged in. It says here, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They were into... um, 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 specializing in doctrine and these are are four different parts of our whole life doctrine, the Lord's table, fellowship and prayer doctrine for the head Lord's table for the heart fellowship for the hands prayer for the mouth this is a full uh, well-rounded course spiritual care priorities that really make up the difference about whether you will move forward spiritually or whether you remain stunted in your life before God. Now, I, I want to take the time just to make sure we understand the distinctions in all of these four characteristics that were carried out. This, this um, attention to the apostles' teaching is really the great doctrines of, of the scriptures, the scriptural truth. This is what, it, what, we're ta- what we would call a hunger for biblical truth. And quite honestly, this is one of the primary tests of whether you're really a believer or not, whether you're really in the family of God, to have a hunger for biblical truth. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, states this uh, when he says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. It is quite normal for us. In fact, it is It is absolutely mandatory for us to have a a, a natural, because of Christ now living in our lives, a natural craving for biblical truth. Just as brand new seeds have a thirst for water in order to grow, the the brand new believer and the ongoing process of a growing believer is to have a, 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 a hunger for biblical truth. It's important for us to make sure that our lives are brought into an orientation of proper doctrine, of the teachings of scripture, of the will and the ways and the word of God. It is crucial because for the most part, it is human nature to guide our ways and our direction by our experiences and by our feelings. Our experiences and our feelings are a very, very bad uh, source of direction. Our direction should come, first of all, from biblical truth, which informs our experience and our feelings. There's nothing wrong with experiences. There's nothing wrong with feelings. But biblical truth, the will, the ways, and the word of God are to be the guiding direction of our lives that inform our experience and our feelings that follow along after the truth. We tell our experience what our experience really means according to the truth. We tell our feelings what our feelings should really be according to the truth. And so they devoted themselves constantly to the hunger for, the, for biblical truth. But it says here that they also fellowshiped. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now that word fellowship you've heard many times before in its original language is called koinonia, which means Literally, partnership in the gospel. This is not the same word as you would simply call a, a crowd gathered together or a group of friends hanging out together. That's not fellowship. That's just a crowd hanging out together. That's just friends being together. This word fellowship, nuanced, means, in, in, involved in its understanding, means ownership. The ownership word comes in there. It literally means a group of people who are who have ownership of each other. There's an, they're, they're mutually owned by the Lord and by each other. That establishes a completely different kind of relationship, which, by the way, is unique to Christianity. There are many others who may use this word or who may, who may insist what they're doing is all about this, but unless you're in the body of Christ, you really aren't engaging in this theological reality called fellowship. Fellowship is the, is the sharing one with the other, the enriching one another, the giving and receiving of enrichment based on mutual ownership of one another through ownership of Christ. It is learning together how to handle the truth it is learning together to grow how to grow how to battle sin how to serve how to exchange the use of our giftedness it's a very specific relationship that we have and they devoted themselves to that the third thing they did here is it says here they broke bread together or what would be celebrated the lord's table together there's also the fellowshipping or the gathering together of simple hospitality and eating. But in this case, it's referring uh, as in particular to the breaking of bread, that picture of what Christ did when he, when he uh, passed out this first communion. And so we have this, this example here of, of, of uh, the Lord's table, which is making sure that our work never replaces Christ's work. The reason we call it the center of Christian life is because we are often expected to gather together and in all of our activity and in all of our busyness and all of our, our, our religious serving of the Lord and giftedness and all of that, we are constantly to remind each other and to remind ourselves that this work is not done by us, results are not from us, the effectiveness is not because of us, it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us, and we constantly need to center our lives back to the table of the Lord, back to the cross, back to what Christ has done for us to make it possible for us to be in the family of God, to be hungry for the word of God, to be effective in our giftedness. And then finally, the the third thing, or the fourth thing you see here is they devoted themselves constantly to prayer, learning to talk to God. And by the way, prayer is a measure of our dependence on God. Uh, Prayer is um, that thing that resets, I think, for us, the personhood of God in our lives. God is not just an idea. God is not a religion. God is not a, a cultural ideal. God is not a custom. God is not a tradition. The living God is a real person. And prayer continues in terms of the center of our Christian living to bring us into a fresh moment-by-moment awareness that we are part of, Of this grand plan of a real personal living God who wants to talk to us and who wants us to talk to him it's an amazing thing the truth of Christianity that the God of the universe is intimately concerned about our individual lives and longs to talk to us and loves to have us talk to him it's the personal nature of, this, uh, of, our, um, of our belief system, of who our God is. And if you'll notice that all of these things, these things that are the core spiritual care priorities that they devoted themselves to are all cultivating intimacy with God and with each other. That's the core blueprint of church. Now... Um, The third thing that I notice here, in verse 44 and 45, that all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need, they prioritized common interests in a competing interests world. I think you'll agree with me that in the North American culture, we are generally not a people-centered culture. Would you agree with me? I think for the most part, the truth of the matter is in, in the West in particular, we are a production task centered culture. And um, Christianity is set in the backdrop, really, of people centered culture. It, it's set in every possible way in the, and, and is centered and finds its fullness in community in people-centeredness. And the reason that we're, we're production-centered, task-centered people is because that's how we're rewarded in life for the most part. But that's not fundamentally how we're rewarded in the Christian existence. It's about community. What was distinctive about the creation of Christianity and the church is that the fundamental description is of enjoying God and each other indivisibly as a package deal. Now, um, some of our postmoderns among us here this morning, and that means anybody in their 20s, likely, or in their early 30s, uh, will wave a flag at me this morning and say, no, wait a second, we're changing all that because we're all about community. I've, um, I've been studying that statement for some years now and have come to the distinct conclusion that they're kidding themselves. And um, so, not to trust myself, I went to that um, guru of all things true, Timothy Keller, and uh, who likes to believe that, that he is an expert in postmodern uh, realities because he ministers to so many Hip and cool postmoderns in New York City. And it, the question was asked of him what is the strength and the weakness of the postmoderns? And uh, he said, well, their strength and their weakness are the same thing. Their strength is this they long for community, which is a really good thing. But they don't actually practice community, which is their weakness. They love the idea of community but don't actually want to put the cost and the effort into what it takes to be in community. And, and so the reason, frankly, that our culture is so enamored with production and task is because it, it really is less taxing and less, uh, uh, less, um, um, en- less um, requires less energy than, in fact, it does to, to really lay down our lives for community and to really engage in community. But this early church clearly was willing to, to make the, pay the price. This word together should mean something to us. It meant something to them. All the believers were together. Together to me is, is sort of the opposite of hiding or the opposite of being alone. Alone and, and hiding never played a, a role in God's picture of health. In fact, you know that that the first thing that God said when he was creating is it is not good for man to be alone. You also know that, it, that the first thing that, that mankind did when they got into spiritual trouble was go and hide from God. And so alone and hiding, uh, the opposite of together, are, are never a picture of spiritual health. Although we tend to want that, that whole uh, idea in our lives, we, we really do gravitate toward individualism. I was trying to illustrate this for the early service and I'll, I'll take a run at it with you in, in terms of, of a human nature and, and maybe a description that will help you to remember this. It, it seems to me that what the writer, what Luke is telling us here in Acts in this description and, and I believe that God, the Holy Spirit is proscribing to us in this whole idea of community is, is like the difference between cats and dogs, okay? Um, you're either a cat Christian or you're a dog Christian and I'll explain what that means. Um, if any of you have cats, and, and I do, you'll know that, that cats are not really community-type creatures. In fact, a, a cat, a cat is, 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 a, is a creature that says, um, uh, uh, you know, when, they, when you walk in the house, they, they don't come running up to you and say, like, in, in a cat way, what would you like me to do? Because I'm just waiting for instructions. No, like cats are like, I couldn't care less what you want me to do. I, I, I don't have. I got my own life going, and, and I don't care about you one little bit. The only time I care about you is if you feed me. Otherwise, I'm doing my own thing. But dogs, like they meet you at the door, and they're like, hey, hey, what can I do for you right now? Can I go get a ball? Can I go lay down? Do you want me to go eat? Can we go for a walk? Is that what you'd like to do? Because I want to do what you want to do. That's what dogs are like. And so you're either a dog Christian or you're a cat Christian, but God wants us to be dog Christians. He wants us to be the kind of people who are responding to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in community, what, what are we doing? What are we doing with God? What does God want us to do? We're not to be individuals and say, I don't care what anybody wants me to do. I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not what God has in mind for us. We're to be people who believe that Christianity happens in community. The church, by the way, is his body. And and the fullness of him. In fact, Paul writes, and I, I, I want you to listen very carefully to this. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And listen to what he says. And God placed all things under his feet, meaning Jesus, Messiah, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you catch that? The church. Which is the, his body. The fullness of him. It strikes me that, that it's not possible to experience the fullness of God by yourself. But in fact the church itself is the fullness of the expression of Christ. That means individualism is pretty much shot out the window. It, it's, it's, it's to be in the recycle bin. Because that's not the Christian community. They, they not only... Um, we're together, but it says they had everything in common. A lot of people are like, oh, could we just skip this part because uh, it becomes so painful. Are you, te- you know, is the Bible teaching here communism? You know, they, they had to sell what they had and give it to everything else. Is, is it the el- end of property, uh, 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 property rights? Is the elimination of all property holdings here? No, no, they went from home to home. So they had things that they owned and continued to own. We need to understand what this is, that, that they understood that Christianity was going to touch the pocketbook and much more. What this really is, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who has had need, uh, what this is in terms of, a, of a, a grand prescription for the church itself is a stubborn refusal by God's people to see any part of the body Deprived. This is how the the community of faith is going to distribute its resources. What we have here is a new form of economic values. It's not rewarding sloth. It's not rewarding laziness. It's not rewarding the consequences of rebellion or foolishness. That's not what this is. What this is is a, a distribution of resources in a way that makes sense. It's not even all about money. Although it speaks here about the resources of selling their possessions. What this is, is understanding that within the body of Christ, there is a distribution of wealth that is different from person to person. Some people have the distribution of great wealth and teaching ability. Some people have a distribution of great wealth in prayer. Some people have a, great, a distribution of great wealth in care or hospitality. And then other people have a distribution and giftedness of, of the abilities to, to accumulate great wealth. What this is teaching here is that that in the community of faith in which the Spirit of God has, has has distributed this great wealth, there is enough resources for the community. It's to be redistributed. It's to be viewed that if you have a resource that's 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 uh for instance, a material resource that's not being used and that's not necessary. And you see someone over here who has great need. You take what's not being used and not necessary and excess and you take it and you invest in their lives. Because likely they're investing in your life through prayer or through teaching or, or through care or whatever. It is understanding this this grand plan of God to resource his body and then to distribute as he will that we might have the joy of redistribution of our resources. It is um, compensating each other as members of the body for the riches of the gifts that we have and enrich one another with those gifts. Keeping all of our resources in circulation for kingdom purposes. That's the key. We venture capital for kingdom returns. That's the kind of people we're called to be. And that's what they did, and it made a huge difference in their lives. You know, if we want to think about it in terms of illustration, um, any good corporation is is a, a, a classic example of redistribution of resources you have the sales department you have the marketing department you have the research and development department you have the administration department you know I, I was a salesman and I was always a tiny bit resentful of everyone who had their hands in my pocket because I was out there I'm out there selling stuff I'm out there making the difference I, I, I want all the money but I, I'm, I couldn't have all the money because if the research and development department didn't research and develop the product I wouldn't have anything to sell if, if the, the marketing department didn't come up with their savvy, skillful ways of, of promoting, I had no audience. If the administrators weren't there to write the paycheck, I had no way of getting paid. And, and the church, in a, in, a, in a reasonable way, is, is not all that dissimilar. They have a variety of things going on. And we share with each other the great victory of moving forward the great product of Christ as the answer to man's problems in life. And so so they discovered this and it made a difference in their fellowship. There's a fourth that I noticed. They went out of their way to celebrate the gift of Christ and his salvation. You see what it says here? Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts or open hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There was just a great sense, a great feeling, a a great enthusiasm about God. Listen, have we forgotten that we have discovered the path of life? Have have we forgotten that, that, that we have the fullness of joy in the presence of God? Have we forgotten that that we have the forever pleasures of his right hand? Have we become so spoiled like rich children in a a rich home that never knew the difference uh, and never knew what it was like to to go and want? Have we forgotten what God has done for us? Are we ignoring the great blessings of the Lord? Because they were excited about it. They were enthusiastic about it. They were causing quite a stir. They were excited and celebrating and looking for every opportunity to celebrate with one another what the Lord Jesus Christ had done to them. I wonder if we have somehow lost a sense of that. What, they, what, what the thoroughly satisfied do, the real lovers of salvation blessings, when you find something you really love, it occupies you. The, the Lord Jesus in, in one of his parables said, when you find a treasure chest in a field, you go and you sell everything you have so that you can come back and buy that field. When we regain our enthusiasm for the Lord and, and are excited about what we have, it, it will become contagious to people outside of us when our neighbors see what the Lord really means to us when our co-workers understand that that the pleasures of God are greater than anything else when they when they discover that they're basically saying I want a piece of that I want what they have that's why they were gaining favor outside of the church have you ever been uh, out somewhere and you see that there's a group of people and they're having just a real fun time whether in a restaurant or wherever they are and you're like you're sitting there in your mopey self eating a bowl of soup and some some gruel and, and, and complaining about the price and the taxes that you have to pay and and so there's another group of people over there just celebrating and enjoying themselves aren't you just drawn don't you just wish like oh I wish I could be over with them that ought to be the way we are that's the way they were that was a distinctive of the people of God, is their enthusiasm was contagious because they were enthusiastic about the greatness of God. You know, as we come upon Christmas, we, we should celebrate better than anybody else. We should draw people. There should be a magnetic draw to the things of God. As uh, G. Campbell Morgan, an old scholar of the past, said, these people were centers of attraction to the multitudes. And another old writer called it centripetal evangelism, the opposite of centrifugal, and, and which I, unfortunately, some of our churches are centrifugal. It's like you, centrifugal force is when you spin something around, it just wants to go away. Centripetal force, centripetal force, right, Duane? Sucks it all into the middle. You just want to be there. You wanna be in the middle of the place where joy and celebration and goodness and happiness and fellowship and all the great things that God has given to us, we get to talk to God. This made them very compelling. I sometimes wonder if we're more seduced by our options than by our opportunities to join the congregation in glorious praise. I hate missing church. I always have. You say, well, of course you do, because you wouldn't get paid if you didn't come to church. (laughs) It's easy for you. No, 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 wait a second. You know what? I wasn't always a pastor. I had an adult life as a lay person. I still love to come to church. I love to come to the place and celebrate the goodness of God and be with God's people, what we share in common, and lift up our voices and praise God and and enjoy the celebration of our great God together. This is what marks us out as distinctive. Every Sunday is a big deal. Every time we get a chance to be together and praise God is a big, big deal. And I hate missing, I hate to miss Calvary. Calvary. They were all filled and favorably noticed. I I hate to miss because God is doing great things. He'll be doing something just the Sunday I miss. They made this a lifestyle priority. Time together creates passion. That's what create that's what characterized this kind of real Christian life. They looked for excuses to be together instead of excuses to not come together. I, um, I think we ought to pay, to pay more attention. I, I know, listen, I, I know that, that we have tough things in life. I know, looking out in our congregation, you know, life, life is not always easy, there are lots of discouragements. There are lots of painful things that come into our lives. There's sickness, there's death and all of that. But listen to us, listen to me. We all know that the last chapter of our lives is spectacular no matter what. And it's spectacular forever. You know, I know, I know we have heartaches and we have burdens and we have pain and we say goodbye to loved ones and all of that hurts desperately. But do you understand the message? Do we understand the message we have to the world and the message that God has given to our hearts? And the thing we celebrate is our last chapter. is spectacular. It's glorious. No matter what. And it goes forever. This is what we celebrate. This is what we praise God for. This is what's magnetic about the things of Christ. And when this all happens, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You will experience, we will experience God work. They experienced God work. God takes notice. God takes notice of this kind of people. People accepting the message. Humanly unexplainable things are happening. People are being added to community. And people look and they, they notice God is there. Fruitful productivity versus fruitless busyness. Best practices of a disciple-making church. They live Christianity lavishly in community. Our Father, I do pray this morning as we have had this wonderful glimpse into history, history truth, describing for us the freshness of an awe-filled, favorably noticed body of believers in which you were really at work. Oh God, there have been many attempts down through the ages to replicate this reality through strategies and tactics. But nothing, 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 Lord, will replace the truth of this blueprint, which is spirit-filled church. Because the disciples there were doing what Jesus told them to do. Lord, would you make that the reality of us in greater, greater measure? I pray. We pray. We pray together, Lord. We agree together. That we desire and thank you, first of all, for all the amazing things that are already going on and have been going on. Oh, God, you've been building us and And growing us and you have you are saving people you have showed us your power in people's lives who are responding to the word of God all of that's true and happening and father we just know that that you don't want us to be satisfied with that to stop there but to long for all that you have that we might be awe-filled And that in particular, Lord, what really, really catches our attention is that our city would favorably notice this ministry magnetically and long to have what we have, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was trying to summarize this week what I was reading and understanding about this text and I thought to myself, this description grabbed hold of me I wrote this, gripped by the grandness of God's grace and the extreme benefit of body life in community, their spiritual capacities were expanding beyond what could be imagined. People were really changing, noticeably different. God's power on display was breathtaking. And I wrote this, we can't settle for bland crowds of individualism. It's gotta be more than that. And so I want to leave with you three practical things this morning uh, to pray about and, and allow the Spirit of God to challenge your heart and your life. And, and there are these. I, I'm inviting you and challenging you to resolve to insert yourself into a discipling community, a smaller community here. We have uh, launched a, 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 an initiative this past fall of, of really encouraging fellowship and body life and getting in, into the Word of God together and growing together. And many of you have responded to that, but there are more of you who could. And We're going to begin another round of that in, in uh, mid-January. We'll be, we'll be signing people up and getting going again. And I'm just, it's just challenging your heart. Get into a discipling community where you can fellowship with God's people. It's part of the core center of Christian life in the early church. That's what they did. I would also encourage you about the whole idea of casual approach to celebration on Sundays, of coming once a month or twice a month or something like that. Here's my challenge to you. I mean, they looked for excuses to get together. We look for excuses not to get together. Can I say this? If you're in the habit of coming to church once a month on Sunday, how about this challenge, that that God would move your heart to come twice a month? Or if you come twice, how about three times? If you come three times, how about four times? Why, why not put this before God to challenge you to, to upgrade your celebration quotient, the, the, the joy you have, and, and it will build your life as, you, as we gather together. And then the third thing is just this whole generosity of giftedness. Let's make sure that we are a people who are enriching each other's lives, understanding that we're owned by each other, by the Lord, put together to enrich each other in the the resources that God has given us to share with each other and benefit each other uh, may that be a, a, a true and radical and new way that we approach our community together. those three things could could I put those out for you uh, to you that the Holy Spirit might challenge your life let's let's close father um, you know the challenge you put this challenge on my heart to give to your people and so father it's yours it's your challenge not mine and and father uh, what you challenge you will enable and so I pray, Father, that we will be people who, who really take seriously our opportunities to grow together and, and take seriously our opportunities to celebrate together and take seriously our opportunities to trade giftedness and resource and make sure that no one is deprived in the, in the body of, of Christ here. I pray all of this because I'm asking for your will to be done, your kingdom to, become, to, to come among us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.